Listener supported. WNYC Studios. There are times in life when you need to be able to live in the vision where you are making a leap of faith into something unknowable. It's that. It's that thing of, you know, I'm going to do this thing and I might not know how it's going to fall out, but I know it's better than what's here. Claudia Rankin is one of the most celebrated writers of our time. She's been a professor of poetry at Yale University and a recipient of fellowships from the MacArthur and Guggenheim Foundations, as well as the National Endowment for the Arts. She's also a fierce psychoanalyst of tennis players. I'm Helga Davis, and welcome to my show of conversations with extraordinary people. In my conversation with Claudia Rankin, we talk about who holds the power in our democracy and what it means to earn a mother's understanding of your work. She also reveals her superpower and the advice she would offer to everyone who looks to find fresh inspiration. I hope you enjoy. Very often when I come to talk to people, something happens. So I get on the train, we get to 116th Street, the train is still crowded. People are going places, even though I think it's a little bit later in the day. And these two people start fighting. And by fighting, I mean screaming at one another. And then I started thinking that there's a kind of energy right now that actually needs to be moved through the body. And that can be true of all actions, whether it's joy, whether it's, it's fear, whether it's anger, that it, it, wants, it wants out through the hands, through the mouth, through the eyes, through the pelvis, through the feet, through the legs, it wants out. And then I started wondering, what are all the things that people are tired of? And then I had to get out my pad so that I could write them down because I knew (laughs) that I wasn't gonna remember. So masks, wear them or don't wear them. No, I'm not wearing them anymore. Inflation, vaccines, the recession, uh, the words BIPOC, and EDI, the the subway fares are getting ready to go up, uh, or there's talk of it because uh, the the MTA says that it won't recover from the budget deficits. And here's where I started to laugh. I was sitting right in front of the sign that said. Let us do the math. <laughs> I would have loved to, yeah. And, you know, in part, it's an opportunity to feel that you could be tired of all of these other things on the list, but that somewhere, someone is going to give you something. Mm. They're going to take care of you. They're going to 
to ease whatever discomfort, whatever financial challenge. And for the most part, it's just not true. As you were telling your story, I couldn't help but thinking of Jennifer Lewis singing, Ain't Nobody Got Time for This. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I feel like just across the board, Mm -hmm. even maybe globally, Mm. we're in a ain't nobody got time for this Mm. kind of way. Mm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But that came, uh, her voice just came into my head as you were telling the story about the the frustrated, the frustrated. Mm -hmm. Do you feel frustrated too? I do. I, I frustrated in a mathematical kind of way, actually. I, I think that right now it's hard to know what all of this adds up to. Mm. And um, we're in a moment where government doesn't seem to equal government. Um, climate change is behaving in the manner in which it was described it would behave. And yet we have no idea what or if there is a solution, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the 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 heat of the planet is the solution, and we're thinking there's some other solution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, maybe we're just on that road, and and the road is itself the solution um, to everything that we put into the atmosphere mm-hmm. over centuries. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it's hard to know if, it, if it's even frustration. It's, um, I think, a lot about where the power and powerlessness comes from right now. Because hmm. you, you are not supposed to approach people. You're not supposed to trust the health of anybody. You're not supposed <laughs> to touch anything. You're not supposed to... You know, it's... Uh, talk about anything. Talk about anything. Um, slavery was involuntary. Um, relocation, apparently. <laughs> you know, all kinds of... <laughs> I'm glad that's sorted out now. I'm glad the math was done on that one uh-huh. because, you know, I was a little confused. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a moment that is illogical in some ways and predetermined in other ways. Mm. There's a spiritual leader I love whose name is August Gold. And she always says, if you want to know what you want, look at what you have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or, yeah, if you want to know what you want, look at what you have. Or if you want to know what you did, look at what you have. <laughs> I feel like we're a little bit there, too. <laughs> I mean, I get a little bit of satisfaction from what the committee investigating January 6th has turned up. Not that it's a surprise. We all know that it was premeditated, um, that the idea that the voting was 
fake or illegal or whatever. It was also fake and the whole claim was made up. It's not that, but there's something about at least there I feel like they're doing the math. Mm -hmm. Even if no one is treated like we would be treated as two black women, if we decided we wanted to do any of those things, even walk up the steps... (laughs) You know, <laughs> let's just put that aside. <laughs> let's not go there. But but there is there is some satisfaction to that. Um, but I, yeah, it's it's really it's really hard to know. Hmm. Are there things now that you feel you're learning anew? And I don't mean even about the pandemic, about about any of that. What, <laughs> you like how I said that? Not mm, any, any of that. that. Any of that. Ain't nobody got time for this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I know what you mean. I, you, you know, as I am about to turn 60 soonish, I really have been thinking a lot about agency and authority and where it comes from. I'm thinking a lot about the fact that the swing vote is in the hands of white suburban women. And what does that mean about what they think their agency is? What are they, how do they think about authority? Um, Did they go to the suburbs to give up on authority? And um, agency, did they sign that over when they signed up for Suburban Housewife? You know, is the role of mother and wife in their minds a erasure of their own voice, their own authority in the world? Mm -hmm. That, it seems like a silly question, but it's been on my mind because, partly because we are in their hands right now. Mm-hmm. What they do come midterms, come um, 2024, will determine what is possible for the rest of us. I mean, black women can, we have been doing what to me feels ethical and right for the general population as well as for ourselves. Mm-hmm. But we are not enough. And these white women have allowed the patriarchy (laughs) (laughs) to take away even the rights to choice around their own bodies. So how can I look to them Mm -hmm. to save a democracy? You know, so Mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm wondering about that. I really am curious to find out from them not what they're going to do. That's not my business. They can vote for whoever they want to vote for. But I'm really interested in how they think about authority. Hmm. Like what does being a mom in Westchester or Hmm. Connecticut or wherever they live, and, you know, maybe we don't think New York is – 
a problem, but you know, everywhere has the suburbs. Georgia has their suburbs. And those women who could change the course of this country. I mean, I went to college with them. I went to graduate school with them. Where are they? What are they doing? Mm. Did they did they sign some secret document I don't know about <laughs> <laughs> that says it's okay for this to be happening to all of us? But do you think that the agreement that they made to go to that school and to that graduate school was already casting them in a way of deciding or not deciding what was good for them? I don't know. I mean, I think adjacency to power must be really seductive. Mm. I mean, we don't have that as part of our story. But they do. They are able to marry um, people who um, give them a life that maybe they dreamt about. Mm. And so that's all I can think. But I feel like, you know, maybe that's reductive. Certainly we're not talking about all white women. I know that. Um, But as we look at who holds the swing votes in these red states and and blue states, everywhere in this country, that is the population. Mm-hmm. So what will allow them to swing in my direction? That's what I'm wondering. <laughs> because I want to live. I want you to live. <laughs> I want us to be able to do, you know what we want to do and have children when we want to have them and do the things that um, contribute to a livable life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these guys who are doing what they're doing and not just, you know, not just um, the Supreme Court, everyone who's allowing what's happening to happen, when they sit down with their wives and their daughters, what are those conversations? I don't know. Like, I don't, I'm, I can, I'm not going to project. I'm not going to pretend to know. Mm-hmm. I'm not even going to judge. I'm just curious. Because you said, what am I learning? That's That's... I'm learning that I don't know. I really don't know because I I don't know how we can know what we know and still be here again. <laughs> so that is my humble pie. And inside the pie, mm-hmm. You've also said we're not enough, that black women are not enough. In terms of numbers, we aren't. Mm. We aren't enough. Um, I was just reading um, a conversation between Baldwin and um, Audre Lorde, which you know all about. And, um, And there's a point where Baldwin says, we are powerless, but... 
maybe our power is the fact that we are a nuisance to the power. (laughs) 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 That that role of being the constant irritant may be a kind of power. So we're not enough in numbers, but certainly um, we have been an irritant. I, you know, I went to, I was in um, L.A. At, and I just happened in on the ICA um, art gallery. And um, there was a neon sign that said Maxine. And that was it. And of course, you knew it was Maxine Waters mm-hmm. and this idea of reclaiming your time, mm-hmm. you know, was fantastic. But it was just this beautiful blue neon sign, Maxine. Um, and that's what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like, you go. <laughs> that's all I have to say about that. You go. <laughs> You're listening to Helga. We'll rejoin the conversation in just a moment. Thanks for being here. The Brown Arts Institute at Brown University is a new university-wide research enterprise and catalyst for the arts at Brown that creates new work and supports, amplifies, and adds new dimensions to the creative practices of Brown's arts departments, faculty, students, and surrounding communities. Visit arts.brown.edu to learn more about our upcoming programming and to sign up for our mailing list. Music helps us celebrate, contemplate, cope, and connect. And we've got the stories to prove it. Join me, Terrence McKnight, for the new season of The Open Ears Project, a podcast in which people tell us about the piece of classical music that has meant the most to them. That music might even wind up being meaningful for you. The Open Ears Project. Listen now wherever you get podcasts. And now let's rejoin my conversation with poet and playwright Claudia Rankin. During the run of Help at the Shed here in New York, you had a night that was called Blackout. Tell me what what that was about for you. Well, you know, many of my projects, um, especially the plays, but some of the books, People have complained that um, they feel it's for white people, <laughs> which I never can understand. I'm like, I'm a black woman. How could what I write be for white people? Like, how is that possible that that's the only person I'm intending to reach as a black woman? I've lived as a black woman all my life. So in um, the last play, Help, which was a kind of um, extension of the piece I wrote for the New York Times, Alex Putz, the, the creative director, CEO of The Shed, approached me to, to adapt it into a play, thankfully, because I thought it was a damn good play. And <laughs> As did I. <laughs> um, 
And there was some thought among some people that it was a play meant for white people, partly because there was only one black actress. And, um, and then 11 in this iteration, white actors, um, two women, I think um, nine men, some, some configuration like this. And um, so when we had the Blackout Night, which is for a black audience, the question was, will the audience feel like this play speaks to them? Whose question was that? A few people. Okay. You know, some people. I was just wondering yeah. if it was your question. It wasn't my question ever because I, I am always thinking about black people because I'm always thinking about myself. <laughs> so why people would think I wouldn't be thinking about myself and talking to myself, I don't know. Um, so we had an audience, I think it was, uh, you know, it looked all black to me, um, black and brown, I would say. And, um, and it was deeply satisfying to everyone in the cast and um, in the production to see that people felt moved by, hmm. by what they were being asked to both observe and take in mm -hmm. and that it was a useful 90 minutes for them, mm -hmm. not just an entertaining 90 minutes for them, you know? What does your mom think of your work? You know, my mom didn't get to see the play. She was gonna come and then my sister's grandchildren came. And so that was, it just, they came um, unexpectedly on the day that she was going to show up for the play. Um, so I don't know. Um, not recently. She read, she reads the books. She does? She does. And she finds them interesting. And she, um, she will say, you know, we're very proud of you. But I don't know if it's... Um, no, I believe her. She's very proud of me. <laughs> I believe her. I What I was going to say is, you know, sometimes you don't know if it is, I am proud that the world thinks your work is good or I am proud of you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard to know, to parse that. Mm -hmm. And maybe it doesn't matter, you know. I experience with my own mother, who's also a Caribbean woman around the same age as your mom, a little older, her amazement that I work doing something that she doesn't understand or that she doesn't know about. Um, she came, or I should say I invited her to one thing that I did when Robert Wilson and Bernice Johnson Regan's The Temptation of St. Anthony was at BAM, I invited my mom, I invited my brother, and I told my brother that 
I was happy that they were coming, but I didn't want to be distracted by them. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, sis, I understand. I understand you're working. This is your work. And already for me, that was a step in a direction that we had not taken before. That is work. Mm -hmm. There is a scene in which, because I worked it out, I get to the door, which I don't walk to, I slide to. So there's already that. Mm-hmm. I have to make sure I slide to the center of this entryway. And I know that I have 17 steps. And then I have to put my hand out to the right. I'm, oh, I'm carrying a, some flowers. Or, and then I have to turn when I get to the mark and then put my hand out, as they, as they would say, just so. And that there's a light there. And the thing that I'm carrying should be in the center of the light. I got it. But I've worked it out, so I'm not worried about it. I do my slide. I turn slowly in the doorway. I begin my 17 steps. And I see my mother, my brother, my brother, my brother, my sister-in-law, my sister-in-law, my sister-in-law, my niece, my niece, in the front row. And I walk down, I do my thing, I turn, I get my flower bush in the light, and my mom stands up and applauds. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) God bless her. (laughs) and so after the show everyone asks me was that your mom and I say yes and I don't know if it's because I was whatever age I was when I was doing that or because I worked so hard to get it right But I feel all of a sudden that my entire effort is for naught and that the show for me has become about my mom. And I remember speaking with her after this. I didn't say anything. But that then she began to name all the people she told how excellent I was Mm -hmm. and how good Helga was. And I did my best to receive that in light of the fact that I also felt that the moment wasn't about me, Mm -hmm. that it was about her. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, as a mom myself, though, I, I kind of feel like maybe she was just pulled up from that chair. Mm. You know, not even... In a Pentecost kind of way? In a Pentecost kind of way, that it was an amen moment. It mm-hmm. was like, my child wanted to do that, and she did it. Because mm. <laughs> um, I, I, was, I was up on my feet with her. 
<laughs> Except that you wouldn't have done it. <laughs> I wouldn't have done it. But, but I'm, I, you know, I go to the theater all the time. Maybe she doesn't. Maybe the protocol. Oh, she of that, doesn't. You know, I, my mom went with me. Um, I remember I took her to Rutgers. Actually, I had a reading there, and she was in New York, and I was in New York, and I said, "Why don't you come with me?" And it was a um, a kind of watershed moment in terms of her understanding what it means to share your work publicly. Mm-hmm. Because ever since then, she has um, been much more understanding, say, of my travel. You know, before she would say, why are you traveling so much? You shouldn't travel so much. (laughs) But now she'll say, oh, you're giving one of your readings. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I'm giving one of my readings. Mm -hmm. And so that sense of um, coming into the world and not just seeing what it looks like, but seeing that it mattered to her too, that the content of the work was something worth listening to. Mm and engaging. Um, And so it moved out of the world of abstraction and into a world she understands, which is very pragmatic. And, um, you know, you do this thing and you get something from it. (laughs) Do you have that also? Do you have that too? A sense of pragmatism Mm -hmm. in the world? I think so. I think... um, that's why I'm wondering what the white women are going to do. <laughs> all those nice swing voters out there. Um, because, I, you know, because I, I think actions are tied to actual consequences in terms of what you can and cannot do and, and what things look like. And all of it, um, what your child has access to how safety works in the world. I mean, I, I do think we have, we, it's often a one-to-one relationship. I do have a very pragmatic approach to life, which sometimes I think doesn't help me because I think there are times in life when you need to be able to live in the vision of a possible where you don't know what the one-to-one is, mm-hmm. where you are making a leap of faith into something unknowable. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think if I'm learning anything from the generations that are younger than me, that I see very actively um, creating interventions in the world that we are in right now it's that it's that thing of you know I'm going to do this thing and I might not know how it's going to fall out but I know it's better than what's here Mm -hmm. so it's it's been interesting to try and live beyond the practicalities Mm -hmm. trust beyond what you think you know you know, and to hold actively the idea that what you know is only part of it mm-hmm. and can only be part of it because you got to hope it's only part of it. 
because that part is not looking so good. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I really hope that, um, I hope that the large, and I do believe it actually, I do believe that um, what can be known by me um, is only a small part of what can be known. And so I just hope that we have access to the other part soon. <laughs> very, very soon. Can you say something about the importance of words, what we name things, how we call things? Well, as someone who deals in words, um, I, you know, I find them fascinating in the sense that the right order can give you so much more than the stated thing, you know, whatever the statement is. If the words are in the right order, if they um, sit in the right paragraph, if they own their punctuation in the right way, they can do so much for you or not or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and they, you know, language is one of those things. It, it can um, enter or not. I was, I was um, reading something today about one of Adele's songs and how, oh, it was in, oh, John was reading, that's what it was. John was reading um, Noir's book, Animal Joy, and she was writing about how psychoanalysts um, are interested in Adele's songs because people have such profound um, reactions to them. And whether it's the music or the actual words themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think um, Saturday Night Live did a, a skit about mm-hmm. people playing Adele song when things got heated over Thanksgiving. You put on an Adele song and everybody calms down. <laughs> <laughs> and it was something about the song hits everybody in one way or the another. But I, you know, I think that's true for a great novel or a great poem that... It's, it lives in you, because, and it's really all about the order in which those words appear. Mm. And um, so I, I, I know this is um, hyperbolic, but I love language. Mm. And you should say, you should marry it then. And I would say, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do, I, I'm fascinated by conversations. I love sitting on public transportation and listening to people's conversations because it's, it's not that, you know, they're people. So what they're saying ha- has been said a billion times before, but, but not how they say it, mm-hmm. not in the order that they put those words and not with the intonations that they give those words. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's always delightful to me to, to, to just listen. I did hear a wonderful 
split-second conversation the other day between a mother and a son. Oh, yeah? I have to find it so I can read it properly. Ooh, I ripped the cover off my little book there. All right, let me turn it right side up. Here it is. A mother tells her son, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do it. It wasn't on purpose. Sometimes you just have to move on. I think, ah, this is where you learn. This is how. That's great. How old was the son? Do you remember? Seven. Oh, so it actually could be heard. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember when my daughter was the, that age, the things you say, they were heard before they start talking back. <laughs> before they're like, ain't nobody got time, time for this. this. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. One of the things I am, I know that you are going away to be in a different city, mm -hmm. doing what you do. And I'm sad to miss watching the U.S. Open with you. Oh, yeah. One of the things I love watching the U.S. Open with you is listening to your psychoanalysis <laughs> of the players. So someone serves and they double fault at, let's say, 40 love. And you might say, no, they don't, they don't really want it. Their head's not in the game. Um, it's the, the, you don't, they don't really want it. One that always sticks with me where it, where it comes in. What's your relationship to tennis and when did it begin? Well, you know, I, I, first of all, thank you for being generous. Cause I thought you were going to say my screaming. <laughs> <laughs> Which you know is true. <laughs> we could edit and I could I could say it again. <laughs> I know. And sometimes I'm just like, you know, everybody leave because it's getting ugly in here. <laughs> but um I started watching tennis in a in a backdoor kind of way. I had just gotten, I think it was my second job teaching at Barnard in the Upper West Side, you know, the women's college. And um, Harlem, you mean? Sorry. Harlem. <laughs> Harlem, all right, Harlem. And um, words, Claudia, words. words. And <laughs> with that job came an apartment on Amsterdam Avenue. Um, it was part of my contract. And so John and I lived in this apartment, this little apartment, so that if you were in the bedroom and John was in the living room watching golf, which is what was happening, Tiger Woods in his heyday, I um, would be trying to read in the bedroom and all I would hear is, Tiger Woods! <laughs> Tiger Woods! But then I would hear things like, 
Is that legal? Is that legal? Can he really do that? Is he is he cheating? Is that is that legal? <laughs> mm. And I, you know, and as John was watching Tiger and Tiger was doing these incredible things, you know, um, playing, you know, winning tournaments in the dark. <laughs> you know, it would be dark and Tiger has just hit the, a ball in the hole. And then they'd be like, is it legal to hit in the dark? I don't think it's legal. I don't think you can win that way. <laughs> and um, I, the racism of the announcers was off the charts, off the charts. And so the, the Williams sisters were just coming up around that time. And I thought, oh, my God, if it's like this for Tiger Woods, who they love, they love him so much that they hate him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, they were just so racist. And they brought in a, a white announcer who was younger. And the white announcer um, would say things like, no, according to the rule book, um, he can do that. That's perfectly legal. And that's all he did. He didn't interrupt the other two guys, the older guys. He just would say things like, according to the rule. <laughs> and so then I started watching tennis because I, I, I thought, if he's being treated like that, how are black women being treated? And they were playing ruthless. tennis. Ruthless. And it was ruthless. It was, and especially for Serena. And I got hooked. I mean, and the more I um, followed Serena's career, the more hooked I became on tennis itself mm. and interested in the other players. And so then, you know, you would follow them and listen to the commentators. And after a while, you really, you get to know them. So when they come, <laughs> when they come, you know, when they find themselves in the quarterfinals or the semifinals of a Grand Slam, you sort of understand what they will do and who they are as players and as people. Mm -hmm. And... And you want them not to do those things or to do those things differently or to do what they know how to do in those moments. And, you know, some of them are brilliant but frustrating, like Monfils or others who are clearly brilliant players but never have managed to win a Grand Slam. So you carry the knowledge and, after, you know, it's been, oh, oh my God, 30 years of watching, so you get to know. How does it relate to you, though? What does it say about you? What does it say about me? It says I am passionate <laughs> <laughs> about, you know, I'm a passionate fan of whatever it is I'm engaged in. And, and, and I think that's true. I think give me anything and give me 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and I am full on with you. Um, I think that's one of my superpowers, actually. I do, too. What's a thing that you do every day that every person could do to find something new in themselves, to, to ask a different question, to go on, to to be inspired? Well, I think, uh, you know, this is going to sound uber ordinary, but I do think 
I hope I try to listen. And if I feel like I'm in danger of not listening, I will write down, listen on a piece of paper. <laughs> I, you know, if I think I'm going in here and I might not listen, I will write down, listen, because I, I think it's so important to, to hear what somebody is really telling you. So I hope, I hope those people in my life and the people who are in my life briefly um, feel that because I'm trying. I am trying to hear and to know. And it's not because I, I feel, I, you know, I have a lot of boundaries. I, I spend a lot of time making sure my boundaries stay, stay in place. So it's not that I feel like I will give myself over, but I want to be able to act accordingly. I want to give to the other person as much as they need while keeping myself erect, you know, keeping myself standing. And the only way to do that in a way that's equitable and feels good so that I can go on to the next moment, not regretting the moment before, is really listening, really being attentive both to my own needs and to the needs of people around me. But it's like anything worth doing, it's work. Yeah. And you have to remind yourself to do it and not to go into autopilot and not to think you know. You don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, we're all such complex individual masterpieces. You know, we really are. And... Um, Capable of breaking. Capable. From the pitch comes the shape of things to come. I know this and open my eyes, knowing you are already somewhere shaping the black. Thank you. Thank you. My love. That was so much fun. That was fun. That was my conversation with Claudia Rankin. I'm Helga Davis. Join me next week for my conversation with painter Glenn Ligon. What was striking to me about that was, it was my professor saying, he does something different than everyone else is doing, and I value that. Mm -hmm. And in retrospect, that was super important. It's like, oh, you know, <laughs> the thing that I do that's not like what everybody else does is actually valuable. To connect with the show, text Helga to 70101. And we'll send you a link to our show page with every episode of this and past seasons transcripts of my conversations, and resources of all the artists, authors, and musicians who have come up in conversation. We'd also love to hear from you, so drop us an email anytime at helga at wnyc.org. If you want to support the show, please leave us a comment and rating on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And as always, thanks for listening. Season 5 of Helga is a co-production of WNYC Studios 
and the Brown Arts Institute at Brown University. The show is produced by Alex Ambrose and David Norville with help from Lucy Jones. Our technical director is Alan Gofinski, and our executive producer is Elizabeth Nonamaker. Original music by Michelle Ndegeocello and Jason Moran. Avery Willis-Hoffman is our executive producer at the Brown Arts Institute, along with producing director Jessica Wazilewski. WQXR's chief content officer is Ed Yim. <laughs>